The readings for today come from Luke 4, 16 through 21, 25 through 30. Jesus went to Nazareth, where he had been raised. On the Sabbath, he went to the synagogue as he normally did and stood up to read. The synagogue assistant gave him the scroll from the prophet Isaiah. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. He has sent me to preach good news to the poor, to proclaim release to the prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind, to liberate the oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the synagogue assistant, and sat down. Every eye in the synagogue was fixed on him. He began to explain to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled just as you heard it. And I can assure you that there were many windows, widows in Israel during Elijah's time when it didn't rain for three and a half years, and there was a great food shortage in the land. Yet Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to a widow in the city of Zarephath in the region of Sidon. There were also many persons with skin diseases in Israel during the time of the prophet Elisha, but none of them were cleansed. Instead, Naaman the Syrian was cleansed. When they heard this, everyone in the synagogue was filled with anger. They rose up and ran him out of town. They led him to the crest of the hill on which their town had been built so that they could throw him off the cliff. But he passed through the crowd and went his way. Good morning, everyone. My name is Jonah. My pronouns are they, them, theirs, and I'm one of your pastors here at Zao. We are in our final week of this hate mail series, and I got to say, it's been one of my favorites. It's been a really unique opportunity for us to um, speak directly to the hatred that comes our way pretty frequently when we do public ministry, Uh, but to be able to deconstruct some of that, some of the lies that American Christianity has clung to. And in doing that, in deconstructing and tearing that apart, which is a process that a lot of us have had to do, right, when we have things that we've been taught that have been harmful, we have to take those apart and disassemble them, ask where they came from. We've been doing all of that deconstruction, but we also have to do construction in its place. Otherwise, we're left with a pile of rubble. We know what the church is not. We know what Jesus is not. We know what the gospel is not. But what is church? What is the gospel? Who is Jesus? And throughout this series, we've been doing some of that. We've been saying, okay, The hate mail that we have that's been telling us we're a fake church is premised on the idea that a church is a 501c3 institution that is supported by the government. Well, if it's not that, what is it? Well, it's the body of Christ. It's a community of people risking everything to follow along the way, the way of Jesus. Similarly, if Judgment Day is not everyone I disagree with burning in hellfire, as our haters seem to think it is, then what is it? We've called Judgment Day the naming, confessing, and lamenting of oppression that paves the way for true healing, like a cosmic truth and reconciliation commission. We've talked about treason 
and what it means to have our citizenship not in any place on this earth, not in any earthly nation, but in heaven and where our loyalties must lie then, how then we are supposed to react when our faith is characterized as tied to nationalism or even patriotism. We've talked about how true prophets speak love, that the foundation of our prophecy, the foundation of our truth is love, which results in acting out the teachings of Jesus, not simply saying, Lord, Lord, but acting in a different kind of way, that false prophets are not the ones who are saying, we need marriage equality or we need police accountability. False prophets are the ones who are speaking the language of the world in terms of oppression and capitalism and power and domination. And so we've gone through this process of breaking things down and building something else in its place. Next week, we're actually going to go even deeper into that building process to ask ourselves, what is the kingdom? We're starting a series called The Upside Down, which I'm really excited about, where we'll talk about how the version of the kingdom that we have here on this earth, earthly kingdoms, are like living in the upside down, that there is a different way of being, that not only do we need to deconstruct the empires that we are subject to, but we also need to build on the teachings of Jesus a vision for a different kind of kingdom, a different way of being. We'll spend some time in the, in the to- stories Jesus told explaining just what the kingdom is. For our last week in this hate mail series, though, I want to talk about this one final phenomenon that really threaded itself through all of the hate that we got. It was really interesting because you would see these patterns of people saying, fake church, treasonous, you know, burn in hell, all the, all the fun stuff, all the highlights. But there was another thread that was through a lot of this hate. And there's a reason that even though we've been reading all of those uh, pieces of hate mail in jest and in joy, we decided not to do that for this last week, which is that there is an incredible amount of fury directed towards our intersectional values and identities. You see, these haters start with racism, and they get really explicit about it. But then it takes a turn, and we're called abomination scumbags or perverts. Then folks are correcting me about my gender sickness, all the while using really awful language about mental illness and disability. This thread of hate is a reminder that when they hate one of us, they really hate all of us. It's also a reminder that our existence is resistance, that simply being in the world, especially being publicly, being lovingly, being in community, is an act of resistance because we defy the ways that the world expects us to be. We make leadership look different. We make church look really different than we are told it ought to be. But we must remember that our existence is threatening because the system is built on layers and layers of oppression, these interlocking systems of evil that work to keep all of us down, press differently on different parts of our identity, of our culture, of our world. And so it makes sense that actually those marginalized in any way should align 
should push back, should resist against those forces that are interlocking that depend so heavily on one another. The powers and evils of the world have a stake in us never doing that, though. Because if people who were marginalized banded together and pushed back against those systems of evil, they would fall flat in an instant. And that's because we think of the marginalized as a minority population, probably because of the term minority in our culture that we have marginalized the marginalized even in how we talk about it. But actually, because every human being is some weird mixture of overlapping experiences of privilege and oppression, if we all identified across our lines of oppression, our experiences of oppression, our recognition of oppression in one another, we would basically have all of humanity united fighting back against evil. And so the powers of evil in this world have a great stake in us never doing that, never seeing that solidarity, never joining together based on this experience of shared oppression, this experience perhaps of recognized oppression in systems that we don't share experiences. We could topple the systems of evil that hurt us. And that is terrifying to the powers of evil and privilege, not just those powers at large in the world, but those powers and privileges and evils floating freely in each of us. Because just as we each have experiences of oppression, we each have experiences of privilege. Are you white? Are you cis? Are you straight? Are you able-bodied? Are you neuro neurotypical? Do you have citizenship in the United States? Are you a Christian? Do you have access to health care or education? Very few members of our community would say yes to all of those questions. But I would wager very few would say no to all of them. Systems of power use this to their advantage. Evil uses this. I will go so far as to say the devil uses the privilege and power that each of us have access to, even if it's a tiny fraction of our experience in the world. The devil uses this to hold that privilege over our heads, to terrify us with it, to threaten us with it, to suggest that it is easier to lose what little privilege we have than to win victory over oppression that would mean liberation for all. In our vulnerability, in our fear, in our scarcity mentality, we throw our fight away from dismantling the forces that oppress us and into protecting what little privileges or great privileges we may have access to. In the extremes, you have outright Nazis and fascists, all protecting white supremacy, but also largely protecting patriarchy. And it's no secret that queer folks, people with disabilities of all kinds, and religious minorities are always targeted by fascist and nationalist groups. But in the less extreme cases, we have oppressed people fighting for their own rights, but throwing other oppressed people under the bus while doing so. Take women's suffrage in the United States, which really ultimately was just white women's suffrage. The women's suffrage movement originally was rooted in the abolitionist movement. There was those sparks of solidarity, that understanding that 
oppression that comes for one of us will come for all of us in some way or another. But the white women and the white leadership in the women's suffrage movement wanted the support of the South. And so they basically ended up abandoning the black suffragists that had been laboring with them. And when the 19th Amendment passed, technically guaranteeing the rights for the votes of all women, it functionally was only white women. So who did that help? I mean, you could argue that helped white women. White women got the vote. But it helped protect both white supremacy by continuing to dis disenfranchise people of color, especially black people, and it helped protect patriarchy because there were fewer women on the whole who were able to vote since only white women could do so. In our recent history, our beloved HRC <laughs> abandoned trans people to pass an Employment Non-Discrimination Act, which projected, protected cisgender lesbians and gay people, but explicitly did not protect trans folks, which was a bargaining tool they used to get it passed, was to cut trans people out. And then later, they publicly distanced themselves from the trans community in the fight for marriage equality. One staffer going so far as to say, marriage equality is not a transgender issue. Our passage for today is about this. This idea that liberation is a scarce resource, that it can only come to some of us, and we want it to come to us, whoever us is, and not them, whoever them is. In this passage, it's one of Jesus' first public acts described in the Gospel of Luke. He is home in Nazareth, worshiping with his home community. And he deliberately reads a passage in worship from the Hebrew Scriptures describing the mission of the Messiah. He opens to Isaiah and reads out about bringing good news to the poor. The poor speaking economically for sure, but also referencing anyone who was socially marginalized in any way. It also called for release of the prisoners. When people quote this to me sometimes, I'm like, oh great, so you're a, you're, you're a prison abolitionist too. Jesus was calling for release of the prisoners, quoting from the scriptures. It was calling for the Messiah to heal people, to liberate all who were oppressed, and to bring the year of the Lord's favor, which is Jubilee, the year in which all financial debts were erased and wealth was radically redistributed among all for the purposes of justice. So here Jesus is at the beginning of his ministry in his hometown in Nazareth, in the temple, reading from the prophets who came before him to declare the purpose of his incarnation, what it really meant to be the Messiah, freedom, liberation, healing, loosening the bonds and freeing us all from whatever captivity at every single level. The crowd was thrilled. They loved this passage. This was a classic. Everybody knew Isaiah. But then... He explained a little bit further what his teaching meant. And as he did so, they got so angry that they ran him out of town and they tried to throw him off a cliff. So what did Jesus say that had them go, going from, woohoo, class 
Isaac, liberate us, Messiah, to this guy needs to shut up. And because he's not going to, we can't stand for it. Let's drag him out of town and throw him off a cliff. That's a pretty big shift. Jesus, in his teachings, sort of chastised them, saying, listen, I know you're not going to get it, so fine. But I've got to tell you, you're not really going to like when this liberation comes. And he goes on to name the prophets who had come before him, including Elijah and Elisha. The beneficiaries of those prophets that Jesus names to his hometown in Israel were Gentiles. That is to say, non-Jewish people, people who were not God's chosen. They were outsiders. Elijah was sent to a widow outside of Israel, even though there were widows in need in Israel. Elisha went so far as to heal a person who was commanding an army that opposed Israel. This made his community furious. They had been waiting for a Messiah. They had been praying diligently for their own liberation from oppression, which they were absolutely experiencing at the hands of the Roman Empire. But when Jesus told them that the Messiah had come, but was going to bring liberation to all people, most notably people who are not you, they became murderous with rage. The Jewish Messiah wasn't just for the Jewish people anymore. Worse, he was coming to liberate people that the Jewish folks had some privileges over, which would have been threatening to what little privilege status they had. He was also coming to liberate people who had participated in oppressing them, which felt cruel and wrong. They wanted a savior, but they were expecting a savior that was just for them. The good news, which is hard for us to swallow, is that if we want liberation, it's got to be for all of us. With our mixed bag of power, privilege, oppression, and suffering. And you know what? We are not ready for it. We're not. We try and hold liberation at bay all the time. We want to go piecemeal, trying to reform things. Do my thing first. It'll all be fine if you just give me this little piece the thing that's going to help me get by a little bit more. Because we can't even imagine a world where we could all truly be free. And freedom feels like such a finite resource. It seems like there's just not enough of it to go around. So we give up pieces of ourselves as creation, trying to bargain them for other pieces who are already closer to the top of the heap. How many of us have encountered majority white communities where LGBT acceptance is the norm, but saying Black Lives Matter is perceived as divisive. Or a majority straight community where Black Lives Matter is okay to say, but getting all gender bathrooms was over the top. Then there's the sin that I have been guilty of, especially in the earlier days of my organizing career, trying to say, just focus on one issue. Instead of trying to fight everything at once, you'll never win that way. This one veils itself as pragmatism. And it's something, again, that, that just really struck the heart of me when I was a community organizer, where I was taught, we do one issue at a time. We'll work on your thing next. I was in Chicago in the early days of my organizing, and I remember being at a concert once. 
It was a benefit concert and it was related to police accountability and the struggles of black folk in Chicago. And I was there with another organizer. She and I were both early in our careers and we were really, really bought into the framework of it. Issue-based, you know, one issue at a time will reform our way towards freedom. And while we were there and people were talking about the police and we were talking about police brutality and um, the struggles of black folk in the city, somebody shouted out from the crowd, free Palestine. And my colleague turned to me and just rolled her eyes so visibly. And I was like, I know, right? Like focus on one issue. I was so smug because I was sure that the more things that you were really fighting for, the less effectively you were fighting for any of them. I was sure that if you fought for two things or four things or infinite things, that someone was going to be turned off by the message. And you should just focus on what you could agree on and make a little bit of headway there. My smugness lost sight of the kingdom, lost sight of the joy and beauty of solidarity, Lost sight of how freaking cool it is to be in Chicago fighting for the rights of black and brown folks who are struggling against police brutality and hear solidarity with Palestine halfway across the world. There is actually an incredible history of solidarity between the Black Lives Matter movement and the people of occupied Palestine. There are stories of Palestinians ordering pizza to be sent to the activists in the streets in Ferguson. In Ferguson, there were a couple of Palestinian Americans who were very familiar with both struggles. One of them, Bassan Masri, wrote an article called, In Ferguson, I Am Reminded of Palestine. He says, On those terrible nights in Ferguson, when the police were attacking peaceful civilians with tear gas, Palestinians under Israeli occupation offered advice on how to deal with the effects of the gas. Facing violence from an occupying force, whether in Palestine or Ferguson, forges a mindset that demands resistance and standing up for one's community. When the police used military tanks and checkpoints to imprison the residents of Ferguson, I was reminded of life in the West Bank, where I saw the Israeli military use the same tactics of repression. The beauty of intersectionality is a kind of understanding, a putting together of the dots, a prophetic imagination, not only to see what could be, but to see truly what is, to see the similarities in occupied Palestine and in occupied Ferguson, to see the similarities between peoples who are pushing back against those systems of oppression, who are demanding justice, and to feel a closeness and a connection, a solidarity. To say, I see those others who are wounded by power, and they are more like me than not. I see the wounded parts of myself and the wounded parts of another, and I value those parts more than whatever gets me past those checkpoints, if I can. It's about seeing the functions of evil and oppression and fighting it in all forms, not letting yourself be recruited by power in the hopes that they will target you less for it. What is one practical way 
that you can commit yourself to the liberation of someone whose oppression is not your oppression. That will be an unlocking for you. You see, relationship is built in the streets, in the struggle. Many leftists will tell you that. That we don't come in understanding everything. That we actually can't show up to our relationships fully arrived. That we necessarily must mess up all the time. We are going to step on one another's oppression. We are going to harm and wound one another. That we need to prepare for that. That we need to be prepared to be wounded by others who don't understand our oppression fully. But that in showing up, in joining in the fight, in pushing back against those systems of evil and oppression, in identifying first and foremost with the people who rise from below, we can forge a different kind of solidarity. We can build a different kind of kingdom. We can have that imagination that shows us the world as it truly is and the interconnected web of power and oppression, but also the weak points, the places to break it apart, the places to come together as human beings in the struggle towards liberation, not just for, for one, not just for a piece of us, not just for some of us, but for all. This is the good news. The good news is that no one is left behind. The good news is that the sheep are not free until we've got that missing lost one. The good news is that we are in this together till the end. And that feels very frightening for some people who have gotten further along on their own because of the privileges they were usually born into. But they actually can't get anywhere without the rest of humanity. We can't get anywhere without one another. And so the haters come for us because they are trying very desperately to hold on to the way things are because they're so afraid that things might get worse, that they want to keep whoever is under their boot under their boot. We have to disarm them. We have to imagine a world where they are actually part of our liberation. We have to let that imagination spread like wildfire. We have to have them catch it. The folks who are so scared that we might be free, we need to invite them into freedom because they too are trapped. And you know what? They might try and throw us off a cliff for it. But Jesus will lead the way as we weave carefully through the mob and off into the night along the way towards a new kind of kingdom. Jesus is here for all of us, including those folks who tried to kill him, including those folks who did kill him. That doesn't mean he stays in Nazareth forever at the temple arguing with them. That doesn't mean he lets them pick him up and throw him off a cliff. But it means that he knows that nothing is finished until they are with him, until we are all together in freedom. This is the solidarity of the kingdom. The deep understanding that no one is free until we are all free. But the good news of the Messiah is that freedom is coming for all of us. Will you pray with me? Jesus, we thank you for coming to be with us. For coming to be with us even though we are not ready. 
God, we pray that you would make us ready, that you would help us to ready one another for the freedom that comes for all of us. God, give us courage in the face of those who would hate us for it. As we firmly proclaim the good news, as we escape the haters who would try to harm us, and as we hold on to just enough prophetic imagination to envision a world in which we are reconciled to all, including those who hate. God, this is a big task, and we need your love for it. Be with us. Amen.